0: Hey, everybody, you're listening to Potta Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. I'm Vic. I'm John. I'm Justin. Today we are without one of our usual suspects. Naya is on family business. She'll be back with us next week. I also want to... That's the bad news. The good news is today is David Chase's birthday. Mm -hmm. So I find it very fortuitous and uh, satisfying that we're recording on the day of his birth. So thank you, David Chase. Oh, actually, thank you, David Chase's parents for giving birth to David Chase today.
1: Yeah, and screwing him up enough to produce a series like this.
0: Yes. Today we're talking about episode... 10 season one a hit is a hit the air date was march 14th 1999 this episode is slightly controversial we'll get into some listener questions that we got in a moment but it was written by joe basso uh, which was his only episode again could or could not be a referendum on the (laughs) quality of the show uh and frank renzulli who we've seen many times and has written many more episodes down the road it was directed by matthew penn Penn is a big shot who's directed and or produced over 150 primetime TV shows including NYPD Blue, Law and Order, New York Undercover, Brooklyn South, of course The Sopranos, House, which is one of my low-key favorite shows from back in the day, Damages, another good low-key show, The Closer and Royal Pains. HBO synopsis: Christopher and Adriana cut a deal with a famous Gangsta, emphasis on the A, rapper, who claims that Hesh pocketed royalties belonging to a cousin who recorded several hit songs decades ago. Meanwhile, Tony plays golf with Cusimano and his white bread friends. Title, another double entendre. It is. Being a mob hit and a music industry hit. Any alternate titles today, guys?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you asked. Um, I like, is a gangster a gangster? Because this episode is all about what it really means to be a gangster. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. Right? You have Massive Genius and Gangster Rap. You have Tony and A. With an A. Or A-H, however you want to spell it. That's true. (laughs) Then you have Tony and Christopher and the whole Italian mafia, La Cosa Nostra, and that gangster crew. And then you even have the uh, Amitagans. the, we'll get get the into, business
0: gangsters. Which we interestingly saw at the dinner. Yeah. A lot of dinners, man. Yeah. A lot of shit gets dissected and, and opened up at these dinners. The dinner is the device. Is it fair to say that dinner is officially a device now? To to yes. disseminate yeah. knowledge and the food is the lubrication to the conflict. And backstory. So again, this title is a classic double entendre. It's a nod to the mob hit Mm -hmm. and the music industry hit. Just generally speaking, guys, before we get into the nitty gritty of this episode, this was an other palate cleanse episode for me to use Naya's term. This episode felt largely improvisational to me, which is fitting since a key component of the episode was music, good and bad, the subjectiveness, and in many ways, the objectiveness, as Hesh will tell us, about what is good and what is bad in the music industry. To me, that felt like David Chase more than a showrunner. He was a jazz improvisationalist riffing on a theme one week after he set the stage for a possible hit on Tony Soprano, okay? Notably, Junior Soprano's absent from this episode, Livia Soprano's absent from this episode, and Mikey Palmisi's absent from this episode. That was a huge pause for the storyline. Yeah, and it upset a lot of people. And again, we we reached out to our listeners today because I'm not going to lie. I was a little short on questions today Mm -hmm. because this episode, I'm torn. I'm torn about how I feel about it. Maybe we can go through this session together and feel differently about it. But the number one question that we got in our DMs was... What do you guys think about this episode as far as being one of the worst? And where does it rank as one of the worst? And is it sacrilegious to even say that The Sopranos has a worst episode?
2: Well, let's say that even whatever the quote-unquote worst episode of Sopranos is better than any other great episode of television, I think. I like that. A lot
1: of people didn't like this episode. But I
0: think it was misunderstood. <laughs> we start the show, unlike the other shows, episodes that we've seen so far, we see New York City. We see the hustle and bustle. We're not in New Jersey anymore. We're not in yeah. Kansas anymore, guys. We're in, we're in the Big Apple. Who was the guy that got clipped? Is there anything there? This is a little bit, this is my only Vic reach. Was it significant or is it just to kind of get you going, get your juices flowing? Do you guys have any thoughts on the initial hit? It being a Colombian cartel guy. Yeah. And then the name, NavSync. Any thoughts on the hit and any thoughts on the company? Is there any sort of deeper meaning there?
1: I look at it as an immediate tie-in to the title of the episode, A Hit is a Hit. So they position this episode as one that could potentially be really violent. The previous episode, you have Junior exposing to Mikey what what Tony's doing and setting up for a, a big showdown later on. And then you have the next episode, you title it, A Hit is a Hit, and you immediately start it with some violence. And it's setting up to be this big showdown, but then the episode doesn't really
0: take it to the extreme. Like we talked about last week, where everything gets set up, like yeah. Sopranos Autopsy said, like Ron said, you know, everything gets set up, but then nothing happens. It's the more regularness of fucking life, to quote the show. Um, Does NaviSync mean anything to you guys? Is there anything there? Is there any deep dive that you're able to find on that? And I'm throwing this back at the listeners, too. The name is big and bold and prominent, and the camera makes a point to show you it. So again, I'm using that as an opportunity to see if there's any Easter eggs that anybody can come up with. I missed
1: that. I, I didn't look. Yeah, I missed the NaviSync. I think it's just a Colombian and big pussy says,
2: Fucking crackheads and their small bills.
1: I think we can take from that that it's some Colombian drug dealers selling crack and whatnot.
2: And it was a pretty big hit, apparently. Well, we had the argument again. Anytime we see large sums
0: of cash, like, how much was that? and It it didn't seem like a lot. Well, Carmela's worried about college, and Tony's like, we got enough. There were large suitcases
1: filled. They should have made it look Like more money than it was. Well, fucking crackheads and
0: their small bills. You know, another thing that we've we've already addressed, Narcos, to go after Columbia, I'm going to use the word, to go after Medellin, okay? Just, did you guys see that movie, Sicario? Yes. That's one of my favorite
2: movies ever. I just saw the second one, too. Oh, I haven't seen it yet. They have the Soldado. He dies at the end. (laughs) Oh! <laughs> no, that's John's, that's that's John's immediate spoiler. Oh, man. You know Everyone that you know,
0: Sicario won when he comes through the tunnel and the guy, the, the cop, the crooked cop, the first thing he says to him, he goes, Medellin? That is such a powerful line because it encapsulates everything about Benicio del Toro, who's mm-hmm. one of my favorite actors, by the way. How sick would it be if he makes it into the Many Saints of Newark? If you Ooh. find a role for Benicio... Oh, anyway, uh, cartel. Oh man. But to hit Medi Ian, Tony's soprano is flexing. It's a it's a show, it's a sign of power. And I again it's to me it's not a throwaway scene. It is a throwaway scene in the sense that we see it, it's over, and we probably never have an encounter from my recollection with the Colombians again. But it is a sign of power. I think it's what it's trying to
1: demonstrate with that scene is the first really big come up for Christopher. That's when he makes a really large sum of money and he's able to kind of lavish Adriana with a couple of possessions later on, takes her out, buys her some
0: dresses, sets her up with her uh, career, quote unquote. Which is actually deep, man. So we're not going to spoil it, but a lot of things that lead to her downfall are set up in this episode. Yeah the industry that she wants to get into and the kinds of activities she wants to participate in, a seed was planted in this episode. um, And we'll we'll get into that, we'll get into that in a moment. Another quick topic I wanna hit with you guys, it's more of like this idea, okay? And tell me if you guys agree or disagree, but one of the techniques of the show, and one of the techniques that the show masters to pull in as broad of an audience as possible. So there's people that don't necessarily care about the mob, especially when I was watching this show, you know, back in the day, you know, my girlfriend didn't care for any of the topics, my girlfriend, now wife. She didn't care about any of the topics and the the actual substance of what it was. But there were a lot of aspects of the show that pulled her in. And one of the things that this show does is, is this consistent use of illusion, okay? Movie references, real world mentions. And this episode was like chock full of them. Jimi Hendrix, Alec Baldwin, Steven Spielberg. Do you guys have any sense of whether this Tactic is unique to the Sopranos or if it's a pretty common device and what I'm getting at is I know it draws me in Closer as a viewer even today 15 20 years later as I'm watching it. I'm like, oh wow They just name-dropped Alec Baldwin in the Hamptons. I get sucked in I feel like I'm kind of a fly in the wall it humanizes the characters so much But I wonder if there's any novelty to what the show is doing. I don't recall seeing it used so confidently in other shows What about you guys it's used now? But did The Sopranos pioneer it?
2: Hmm. I don't think I've ever fully ex- examined a show the way that I do The Sopranos. So yeah. now I'd, I would have to Vic reach uh, everything else But it's else one I of want. the
0: reasons why I fully examine it, because they yeah. drop all these cultural references over and over again. It kind of almost makes you smarter. Watching The Sopranos was, one of the, was probably the first show for me that watching it actually made me smarter. Another, another example I'll give you is Tony drops this term IPO. Okay. Yeah. The show dropped in 1999, right on the precipice of the dot-com explosion of 2000, and there's multiple, multiple mentions of IPOs and stocks and all that stuff. Again, this is just an example of illusion and the show kind of taking you along for the ride, but also making you more intelligent. And a lot of people are going to roll their eyes because they're saying it's TV, but it's way more than that to me. It's HBO. Okay. So we'll leave that topic. Quick topic C before we get into the main things, the listener comments again, were that the general consensus is that this is the weakest episode of season one. What are your thoughts on why? And do you disagree with that? There's a big expectation
1: for confrontation for something momentous in the, in the series to happen at this point, the entire first season is building up to this showdown between junior and Tony. We are just getting over Boca, where they're insulting each other a bit subtly, but forward enough to where Junior is planning some sort of a retaliation or retribution or punishment for Tony. And then we get a full episode where Junior is non-existent. Tony is a part of it, but this is mainly focusing on Christopher and Adriana, and Even Hesh, who's low-key one of my favorite characters. I don't know if that's just because he's a fellow Jewish
0: paisan. We should all be so lucky if we have Heshes in our lives. Yeah,
1: but I just think that you're expecting this big showdown and you get this somewhat tangential episode that is another standalone a la college.
0: Another nod to my thesis that Hesh's horses would be a great prequel series. (laughs) Patches <laughs> horses.
2: Whoever heard of a Jew running horses? I enjoyed the episode. I You I almost, disagree? I almost took the challenge because there's so much written about how bad this episode yeah. is that I wanted to... Be a contrarian to, and tell me why uh, it's a good episode. I haven't decided yet, but I will say that after watching it multiple times that there are gems and there are... Moments that we still use in our day-to-day. It's meme-spiration. Yeah. Uh, you have to appreciate the little stuff about Sopranos. And I think it's the really good episodes that we've seen already that outshine an episode like this, but don't necessarily make this a bad episode. I.
0: I totally agree. Look, the other thing is sometimes most of the episodes are so good that it's almost easy. It makes it a little bit lazy to have to like talk about the greatness, but on certain ones you have to work a little bit. And there are a couple of, there's a zinger that, you know, for various reasons we will not repeat, but when Hesh is explaining, you know, why he's not going to pay reparations. I mean, that was a zinger and a half. You notice the camera cuts right to Tony. And even Tony's expression is like,
1: damn, well, it cuts to Massive Genius with a direct eyebrow raise. He, he finds it a little amusing, but you could tell he's, it's true. he's put I off. I mean, Hash
0: was the winner of that whole encounter.
2: We did have a, so we have a really name drop listener. Mamet Walker uh, works with the Howard Stern Show. Yeah. He's been following our page for quite some time. And we had mentioned that if you have questions, DM us. He had sort of an issue with how the series portrays black people. And it was, this episode in particular sort of, stereotyped the and just the language and the way that they dressed and it it was like this gross overstatement of the culture uh, particularly even with rappers the way that he was dressed the way he acted it was just a little off and then i was reading something in the uh, av club that it was a suggestion that it's a mere interpretation of how the soprano's characters view that culture like they're they're racist so right. leave it to the show to
0: they refer to so, them as to use them in, in
2: the most stereotypical gangster rapper scenario, or in uh, later episodes, um, without spoiling stuff, when Jackie Jr. is hiding out at the house playing chess. This, that character was yeah. so overtly ghetto. Stereotypical Michael, yeah. Michael K.
1: Williams. Yeah. 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 So it's
2: just an interesting kind of deeper discussion about. I have a question about Massachusetts. Was it it a bunch of white writers sitting around, writing this? Right,
0: right, that's true. That was one of the critiques: is that it was almost was oversimplified and nothing was fleshed out. But let's come back to that. Okay. Topic one. There's two sweeping concepts for this show, right? One is this dynamic of the Cusamanos, the golf club, the dinners, the barbecue. And then the second is Christopher and Adriana, Massive Genius, the Hesh sit-down, the music business. So let's do Cusamano and the Medigon topic first. Any initial thoughts, comments, and observations on the Cusamanos, on Tony's dilemma? Right off the bat, it seems
1: like they're self-loathing Italians. They have some ties to their roots, it seems like, in terms of a family-style dinner. But any reference to Tony and the Sopranos referencing the Goomba Murano glass and...
0: Just talking about. I like Murano Glass. Yeah, what's wrong with (laughs) Murano Glass? What's the big deal with Murano Glass, man? Did you guys have any themes for this? It's
1: basically the whitewashing of your heritage and how that's passed on from generation to generation. And I have kind of a little anecdote about myself. My parents are both from Iran. And in high school, there's there's cliques of all sorts. And generally, the people whose families are from Iran, the, the Persians, Stuck together and I was somewhat part of that crew and somewhat not, but they would definitely refer to me as a whitewashed Persian. Uh, you can tell from my voice. I don't have any sort of an accent. My Farsi is pretty terrible. So that's, that's what I would be. So I would be a Khuz.
2: Is talking with your hands a Persian thing? It's a
0: Persian and Italian thing. <laughs> Here we go. I might
1: talk with my hands to your face. Um,
0: symbolism for this topic I had was the stock market. Again, we mentioned it earlier, but the timing coincides with the start of the dot com bubble. T mentions IPOs to Chris when they get that score. Carm buys a biotech company on a whim after hearing about it at a barbecue and T chats it up with the stockbroker. Carm also is reading a newspaper. There's a lot of references to the newspapers. We keep coming back to the newspapers and we actually see what's on the page. This one in particular is showing that the stock that she just recently bought split, so she was actually happy about it, which I actually thought and like this is this is not Vic Financial Planner here. But it's, 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 it's not <laughs> that big of a deal that the stock splits. You basically it's split three to one, and she owns three times as many shares, but it's the price is cutting, alluded, cut yeah. cut by three. So it's interesting. There's this theme. I wish Naya was here for it, actually, because you have two things happening. You have Carmela trying to branch out financially, get some financial security for herself, not be the housewife who just popped out some kids and is going to the gym. And then you have Adriana who wants to do her own thing too wants to start her own business on the one hand you have adriana who gets pressed down by christopher which we'll get into and on the other end you have carmella that scene where tony she's on to him what is with the luck did you just make a score (laughs) no i wish you know tony it's a multiple choice thing with you so i can't tell if you are old-fashioned you're paranoid or just a fucking asshole why do you guys think that he doesn't open that side of things to her? Plausible
1: deniability. He doesn't
0: want to implicate her. Is he that Absolutely. altruistic? He's done that before. Or is it the bird I I
1: look at it as he's a little weary of giving her all the information. Maybe she divorces him later on and she knows about all his financial assets and she could take it from him. So we're in the, he's a good dad camp,
0: but I'm in good the, dad, bad he's not hus- the best husband camp. Yeah. So I'm thinking that he's trying to withhold. I you know? think he's protecting her. Okay, it's interesting how we have like, such a dichotomy yeah. here on that. I think he's a bad father, but raised. a good husband. And I think he's a great father, but a eh, so-so <laughs> husband. You want to go
2: deep dive on the newspaper that Carmela's reading? Please. So it turns out the name Peter Kelly is in bold black letters Okay. that you see. Peter G. Kelly was the show's set production assistant. So was there a little watermark
0: left there? To I'm say? pretty sure. I believe it all, man. And by the way, how great was that that one of our listeners legitimized my VicReach I don't know if I forgot what it was. I, but I did see that. It was something and he like, totally legitimized it. I forgot now, but I was so happy because look, again, it comes back to it. People, there are people actually out there, believe it or not, like we're not the best at dissecting the show. There's so many different angles and vantage points and viewpoints and perspectives and, and contexts that different fans live in that will be able to bring ideas to the show. And that's what I'm grateful for because they're bringing it to light and nothing made me happier than hearing that that wasn't a reach that it actually was actually was like a, an easter egg i think you're your own
2: worst critic on this reach thing we, we appreciate your reach of course
0: well look i have been legitimized a hundredfold uh <laughs> and i can't wait for it till we well, talk we're gonna to create a Ron, instagram page um, the he admitted to his ocd he just wants to get it right i just want to get this yeah. right because this yeah. is my again we've talked about it. we had dinner last week and you guys know that i'm done with the show after this so i need to We'll we'll see. We'll just see. just when you think you're out, <laughs> pull we'll you pull back you in. back in. Um, okay, so new characters. We are introduced to two people. We're introduced to Jeannie Kuzumano, and we're introduced to Bruce Kuzumano. I'll start with Jeannie Kuzumano, who's played by Sandra Santiago. She was formerly Detective Gina Calabrese on the '80s TV series Miami Vice. And Bruce Cusumano is played by the actor Robert Lupone. I'm sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly.
2: Uh, interesting fact about Gene, if you want to do some Sopranos trivia. Yeah. She holds the distinction of being one of only three cast members on The Sopranos who ended up playing dual roles. Yeah, her twin sisters. So. so in her case, it was the twin sister, Joan, in a later episode. Do we know the other two? I'm going to say it's
1: Patsy and his twin brother, Spoons. Correct. And Gino, who we've met, and Vito. Yeah, there you go. Is that correct? I haven't been able to confirm the third one.
0: Okay. Uh, Bruce Cusumano is played by the actor Robert Lupone. He's the brother of Patty Lupone. He is also a decorated Broadway star and formally trained dancer from Juilliard. He only appeared in this show. This is an amazing little factoid that I found kind of interesting. The amount of times the Cusumanos are mentioned. Yeah. He was only in the show five times out of 86 episodes. Really? Five times. Wow. Yeah. You feel like he's, he's got such a weight, right? Well, he's referenced, he has such a big role because
1: he's the person that introduced Dr. Melfi to Tony. So he's mentioned and referenced in therapy sessions through Carmella, through Tony. He's like the Naya
0: that brought us together. That's true. Wow. He's the connective tissue. Great, uh, let me jump into the questions for you guys. Tony distinguishes himself from the Medigan Like Bruce. The Wonder Bread Wops, as he calls them. What are your thoughts on that? What's the difference? I'll throw
1: it right back. What does it mean to be white? What is whiteness? Would massive genius say that Tony's not white? No. Massive genius would say, Tony, I'm sorry. Sorry, buddy. You're white. But Tony doesn't look at it that way. Tony sees himself as... Old country. Old country. Second generation, third generation Italian from the old country. Whereas... Dr. Kuzumano, he could be even closer tied to the old country, but he doesn't act like it. I'm going to throw
0: a word out at you guys. Yeah. Is it civilized? Is that As- the, Assimilate. It's assimilation. Yeah. So like the the Medigon aren't more civilized than Tony. It's a question of they've, they're more assimilated yeah. into yeah. the culture, into American into culture. Into American culture. Um. There's a cultural reference. I'm always going to bring them up because I'm always curious. He says when he's playing golf that the ball runs like a frightened fawn. It's a W.C. Fields reference. Any thoughts, deep dives, analysis, commentary on that? Yes. We noticed
2: actually on our Uber ride here that we passed W.C. Fields Street, a road.
1: So That was very auspicious. Art imitating life. Yeah.
2: It's uh, William Claude Duncanfield, better known as W.C. Fields. He was uh, an American comedian, actor, juggler, and writer. And through deeper dives, this isn't the first time or won't be the last time that James Gandolfini references quotes from W.C. Fields.
0: It's a nod to Tony's also cultural awareness. He's not a dumb gangster. He's able to drop cultural relevance on a dime. Yeah, he's
1: not a one-dimensional character at all. And this episode, for him at least, and Melfi mentions it. You seem to want to branch out. What's stopping you?
0: The guys. You know? What they think if I started hanging out with the Metagon. Thank you. That's a great segue. I like that. That was almost like... Kawhi Leonard, LeBron James, and Kevin Durant just low key working out at yeah. UCLA
1: and like made no don't big forget, deal. Don't forget, don't forget about Seti Osman. Okay, <laughs>
0: I was I sent you guys that picture because the I was hoping beetle. I was hoping that you were going to put some heads on it. There's a meme there waiting to happen. Yeah, it's a because, big Venn
2: diagram with people that like basketball and Sopranos, okay. and, and you <laughs> guys have a target demographic.
0: I just feel like you guys could blow that one up because that's that was an internet breaking picture. Which one? LeBron, Durant, and Kawhi working out to, and playing together. That was, like, for NBA circles, yeah. that was, like, as, almost as big as Kobe joining Uc- the big three. At UCLA, right here. Right here. Right in our backyard. Um, Al Capone, another cultural reference while they're playing golf. There's a mention of Al. These, these guys, these metagons, you know, they just want to know about the, they want them to know about whether the godfather was real. They want to know what Al Capone was like. They want to know what John Gotti was like. Uh, there's a mention of Al Capone's Mount Plymouth. Tony, you ever play that place in Orlando? No, I never get down there. Well... Disney World.
2: (laughs) You know, Al's place.
0: Mount Plymouth.
2: Al Capone built it. Oh shit. Capone was a golf fanatic, that's
0: right. So you guys watch A and (laughs) E. Another cultural reference that I know nothing about, this person, Galante, who is dead. There's a picture, there's a famous picture that I had actually never seen. I'm embarrassed to admit it for being a host of a Sopranos retrospective, but not knowing about this picture. But there's this picture of a guy named Galante who's dead with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. What's that reference there?
1: So it was a cigar. He was well known for always smoking cigars. And Galante was uh, Carmine Galante, shout out to another Carmine. Carmine Galante was an underboss of the Bonanno crime family, one of the five major families. He was eventually the boss, but there was a lot of illegitimacy behind him being the boss. Um, He had a huge beef with the Gambino crime family, connection to the Gaudis. And through that beef and his illegitimate status, a hit was put on him. And he was one of the few bosses that was taken out. And there's a really famous picture of, of him with a cigar, uh, laying right by his mouth as he's dead on the floor. So he had a daughter,
2: Nina, is actually David Chase's second cousin.
1: Yo, wow. when you see something uh-huh. ill, you know what I mean? That's bull. Uh-huh. Anything uh-huh. ill you see is bull. Uh-huh.
0: That's some mic drop shit the time, right there. Yeah. John's a pretty good bullshitter. <laughs> totally not, true. <laughs> totally <laughs> so, not so, true. speaking of bullshit, did T ever
1: meet John Gotti? I would think so.
2: Well, if he lives in that universe then he probably knows Johnny Sack and they've crossed paths before. If, if Tony has connections to the New York
1: side, I'm sure they've swung some clubs together or. Well, let's, let's think about just that story in general. I I look at that as the point where. Cusimano and the, the Metagons are trying to get something out of Tony and they're obviously insulting him, asking him these questions about something that's supposed to be unspoken. And he's getting really frustrated. And at that point, he's just like, you know what? I I don't want to blow up. I don't want to give them the ammunition to look at me as the stereotype that they're painting me to be. So he just goes on about this made-up story about how John Gotti outbid him from an ice cream truck and rings the bell all the way home. And he does this hand gesture, basically like... You're a bunch of jerk-offs.
0: Oh, good catch. Yeah.
2: I like that. He didn't want to show them that he was annoyed by them answering all those questions about the mob, but I, I think he wanted to give them enough info to shut them up, and then, the, like you're saying, the gesture was Which was, was just actually
0: a, uncharacteristic of Tony. Like, he didn't, he gave Bruce a look. He threw him a look, and he does this little menacing walk, but he, uh, he shifted, man. He used Melfi's therapy again and gave these people the illusion of power. Yeah. He know? was embarrassed a little bit. Yeah. I, and, uh... What does Cusumano think is in the box at the end? So this is a Godfather reference. What Godfather is Godfather Part 2. Okay. In the Godfather Part
1: 2, young Vito Corleone, played by Robert De Niro, is sitting in his apartment with his wife and gets some rockstone at his window. And across the... The apartment is Clemenza, who eventually becomes a really good associate of his. But Clemenza has a bag that he just hands to him. And you're supposed to think that the cops are about to raid Clemenza's place and he's trying to hide this bag. And it's filled with guns.
2: Tony's really good at implying violence or crime or things of that nature. He doesn't tell him what's in the box and not knowing what it is leaves it up for interpretation He's and that's very good that's at keeping his cards in his sleeve
0: yeah. he kept his cards in his sleeve with Carmela about the money he has a lot of restraint
1: yeah for and that guy
0: who's very impulsive that's
1: that's the main factor in that godfather reference is that Vito Corleone although he does actually look inside the bag when Clemenza comes back for it he asks him did you look inside he said no Clemenza asks, why not he says it doesn't concern me I don't need to know and that's what gains his trust what's in the box
0: Not give me the what's gun? in the fucking box give me the gun. what does tony do if kuzumano refuses the box
1: he made him an
2: offer that he couldn't refuse
0: all right let's leave the kuzumanos and the metagons and let's talk about topic two which is the music business christopher and adriana massive genius this character that we're going to be introduced to and of course hesh's involvement a couple of key moments to set this up for everybody christopher finally acknowledges that things are looking up which is a big change from the past few episodes when they're waiting for burgers. Also, another little subtlety is that Christopher refers to Carmela as his cousin. And we're not giving anything away, per se, by talking about this right now, but we later learn that Tony was really close to Chris's dad, Dickie. And they're like brothers. So that's why Tony considers him to be a nephew. But biologically, Christopher is Carmela's cousin. So Dickie Moltisanti is Carmela's first cousin.
1: Yeah. But... Adriana also does mention that Christopher and Tony are related as well through Chris's mom's last name is Blundetto, and also we know Tony Blundetto. Yeah. So there's relations on. They're
0: all they're all mixed up. Um, two new characters that I was blown away by: Defiler to Visiting Days Richie Santini, who is also uh, Adriana's ex boyfriend, played by an actor named Nick Fowler. A Cornell graduate, a major label recording artist in real life, and a novelist whose debut, A Thing or Two About Curtis and Camilla, was compared to Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Wow. Yeah, and then Massive Genius was played by the actor bokeem woodbine most recently he starred in fargo season two i'm a fan of fargo i don't know how you guys feel about fargo but big
2: fan big fan that show is amazing shows really good
0: great ip to take the movie and to make it into a series the way they did also bokeem woodbine starred in tupac shakur's music video i ain't mad at cha mm-hmm. whom he formed a close relationship with which i'm a big tupac fan i thought that's pretty cool. he was also in wu tang's protect your neck nice um and the
1: best movie that he was in life with eddie murphy and martin lawrence can't get right
0: i was gonna say a better movie than life was he was sergeant crisp in 1996's the rock with sean connery uh, and yeah, that's, Cage. Right. Oh. That's, right. that's a movie. great movie right so those are the two new characters we've got a couple of memorable lines that i had i don't know if you guys had any but christopher says hey who's fucking welfare check you got a cash to get a burger around here <laughs> And then the second thing is that he says when he comes home with Adriana after that experience at the, the burger joint is, That guy's a gangster? I'm a gangster. I'm an OG original gangster, not him fucking lawn jockey. We'll come back to it with yeah. Pauly too. They're blown away that these people think of themselves as gangsters. Any comments on that? Yeah,
1: going back to what I think the alternate title should be, what is a gangster? He first says the Massive Genius isn't a gangster, but then he says,
0: What do I got? I sit in a fucking pork store for Christ's sake. But the moolies, they got it going on. And they're on TV.
1: They don't take no shit.
0: Soprano crew, it's always secret this or man after that. Fucking gets on my nerves. Junior with his moldy old sweaters and he's a fucking boss.
1: Is Junior a gangster with his moldy sweaters? Or are these businessmen? Are they gangsters? Are we equating being somebody involved in criminal activity and making money off of it? A gangster, if we are, then probably based off of volume, those businessmen in the boardrooms, those are the biggest gangsters. Right.
0: Right. In terms of dollars and yeah. cents. Yeah. Um a couple of stylistic and technical observations from this part of the show, the walk. When Christopher and Adriana are walking up Massive Genius's staircase, every time I've watched this episode, the camera pan, plus the spiral, plus the cadence and the steps, it's all too a little choreographed for me. No. Vic Reach. Over the Another observation, I'm dating myself, but I was a grunge guy growing up. The filer sounds an awful lot like Alice in Chains to me. Don't know if anybody picked up on that. Another thing that, uh, that I liked stylistically was we mentioned Christopher lamenting, these guys are gangsters, I'm a gangster. Later in the episode, we see Polly unstrapping his bulletproof vest. What kind of Molinans are these? They call themselves gangsters. It's a new fucking date. Fucking depressing. I just thought it was a very powerful scene for Polly. He's kind of coming in, he kind of looks like a like a cleanup hitter for the Yankees. It was a good moment for Polly. Great moment for Polly. Where's my baby? Polly, baby, get
1: that big dick in the jacuzzi now. Oh.
0: The last observation is also kind of a musical moment before I get to the questions. I love that Annie Lennox's song Why is playing in the background while Chris and Adriana are arguing about visiting days, shitty music. So the juxtaposition of Annie Lennox is one of her most iconic songs with Visiting Day's just awfulness in general. I thought that was a great use of... It's uh,
2: hard to properly appreciate Visiting Day unless you've heard the original Denmark recordings. (laughs) So there's, we did a deep dive and we wanted to try to find some lyrics to some of the other songs that that Visiting Day has done. Yeah. And one is called Electric Trout. And I can read a few lyrics if you'd like. Please. So it... My singing voice is horrible, so I'm just going to read it. Electric Trout, I named you Tom. Electric Trout, had to live with my mom. Electric Trout, you made a spark. And now I'm electric, recording in Denmark.
0: Questions. Uh, There's a line where Christopher says, I'm looking for a burger, not converted rice. Can anybody explain that? Uncle Ben's. Yeah. He's just being racist. Over at racism. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That was like right over my head then. We see Uncle Ben's later too. In yeah. Tony's kitchen. Not giving anything away. Oh, on Italian singers, Chrissy says, that whole Philly thing. Anybody know what that Philly thing is?
2: Uh, apparently in the 1950s, 1960s, uh, Philadelphia was a hub for good music, which led me to a character error that was discovered. So Christopher remembers his father talking about the 1950s Philadelphia music scene. However, we learn later that Dickie Moltisanti was killed when Christopher was an infant. So there's no way he would have heard his father reference that.
1: Maybe Chrissy was a very astute infant. Precocious child. Mm.
0: Why doesn't Massive Genius move on Adriana? He knows
1: that Chrissy's connected with the Tony Soprano crew.
0: He was staring at her.
1: I think that is probably one of the reasons that people maybe don't like this episode it doesn't really go anywhere and there's no follow up it's and just that, this that's not real life man Christopher would get way more pissed yeah.
2: this is my observation it's the hazards of having a hot girlfriend
0: yeah I, well he I, knows that we
2: have the argument
1: I really don't know if Massive Genius had a massive heart on for her. what else what else was in it for him though why was he humoring them by saying I'll sign Defiler visiting day to my Massive Genius label was it just the sit down with Hesh was that
0: all he was going after which is a whole other issue by itself, yeah. you guys. He has no vested interest in that 400K. He just wants to make somebody in San Bernardino, right?
2: That was strange. It was cool to see a character like him square up against Tony in his yeah, crew. Yeah, you needed and, that. You needed to, to see that. to have you know, There was a teeter of threat. Yeah, on the phone. Oh, maybe if you read Chuck D's
0: book. <laughs> I didn't want violence, but there was a threat of violence when Paulie leans in and he gets restrained. But it was very professional, it was very lawyerly. My lawyer will call you a lawyer. Well, I'm going to sue you. Well, I'm going to countersue you. And it just kind of all fizzled into nothing you know i think that the viewers the people that complained about the show i think that's one of the reasons this one of my gripes is that you have an opportunity to have like an ancillary character but you have an opportunity to go deeper with it because you're you're riffing when you're riffing when you're hearing jimmy hendrix jimmy hendrix has mentioned his guitar riffs they go off Like, you know, we're just going a couple of acres away from the reservation. Jimi Hendrix's guitar riffs go off the fucking reservation. And they had an opportunity to do that here, and they didn't. And so, for me, I'm kind of like, okay,
2: so what? In later seasons, we have a rapper played by a real-life rapper. If The Sopranos was filmed today, who would play Massive Genius? Would it mm. be Kanye?
1: We had Common.
2: Yeah, we, we were thought thinking common. In
1: common. Someone eloquent... Someone intelligent. Someone who can act. (laughs) Someone who can act. John Legge
0: could have done it too, actually.
2: I would have
1: been
0: good. Chrissy's technique of positive visualization. He mentions this to Adriana, and I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Pakteman. Well, this
1: is more, it's like a self help technique from The Secret. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with the secret, but it's more about visualizing what you want to come true and then in turn summoning the powers of the universe to bring it to you. I used to use this technique when I was shooting free throws. My 50% free throw percentage probably shows that this might not be the, most, uh, the best technique to use. My technique was using the line from above the rim. How you like that, toy cop?
0: Snap your wrist more. Excuse me. Ball needs rotation. Spread your fingers. <laughs> okay. There we go. The Tupac connection. Uh, Sopranos autopsy referred to three scenes with Adriana scantily clad. To just use a, a Metagon term. Okay. As meta exploitation. Again, this guy can write. Thoughts on the choice to display her in this way? They use. They specifically show her undressing or, or pretty much naked three times in one episode. When it's a show. And it's an episode about her empowerment and upward mobility. Any thoughts on that?
1: That her sexual prowess or exploitation is always going to be an anchor. She's trying to impart wisdom onto Christopher. She's trying to give him advice. They're talking about her potential career, what's going on with the situation with Hesh and Massive Genius. But then all you can really notice is that she just looks phenomenal and she's in a bikini or in her lingerie so i took it a
2: completely different way we see their relationship develop very quickly and it's usually in scenes with them at home alone and just being themselves and what she's doing is what any normal couple would be doing decompressing the day and getting undressed in front of each other i i caught it as just a very natural Just conversation and she's changing after their day. Gratuitous or not, I I think it strengthens the relationship that they have, that they're just comfortable with each other.
0: I was bothered by it. Again, I'm going to go back to the word that I learned, meta-exploitation. I just felt like it undermined everything that she was trying to do, but I think that was also part of the point. They were trying to show that maybe You know, her sexuality is always actually going to, it's going to be something that's going to be a hindrance for her because she's just going to constantly be objectified no matter how many steps forward she takes. But I do want to say something about how progressive it was to have this episode and this scene in 1999 and to to showcase it, you know, because we're dealing with the same stuff right now today in 2018 and uh, they were on top of it in 1999. It's just a, again, testament to the brilliance behind the people that put this whole thing together. Okay, Junior, Livia, and Mikey Palmisi, as I mentioned, all basically got the week off. They stayed in Boca, okay, for this episode. Why wouldn't Junior be at the sit down with Hesh and Massive G? This is like a significant 400K coming out of his enterprise. Is there any controversy to that, or is it much it would do about nothing?
2: Hesh really isn't, he's an ancillary character to the crew. I know he has to pay up to Junior, and we dealt but with
0: that in the But if his pockets are light. Yeah. Junior's pockets are going to be light.
1: I think you make a really good point. Why wasn't Junior there? He was He was there for the sit-down with Hesh earlier when he was taxing him.
0: But He's the boss was, of the fucking that family. was directly
2: involved. The, Junior's the lightning rod. He's the, the fake leader, and this is the real men we're doing business. But if
0: I'm Mikey Palmisi and I found out that my guy is not at this meeting, I'm going to be cracking hands. Yeah, yeah anyway. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. I think
1: probably because Chris was the person that brought it to their attention. He took it straight to Tony, who took it to Hesh, and then that was... Those are all the parties involved. Uh, They could just handle it themselves. Chris ran his mouth a little bit and the antidote to that was fizzy water? Throw
0: some LaCroix in your head? (laughs) I didn't get that. Like, that didn't make any sense to me.
2: In typical Hesh fashion, he seemed to already have the solution and was just holding it until he showed his cards at the end. And he even said to Chris, you know, stop wasting my time with this. This whole topic to Hesh Probably was not that big of a deal, and he didn't think he needed to escalate it.
0: A couple of miscellaneous questions before we do a last call. Carm asked Tony, What happens if something happens to you? Tony mentions Old Man Coletti. Anything there?
2: No. Okay.
0: Finally, I think it's safe to say that not every episode is perfect in The Sopranos or faultless in The Sopranos. I think, John, you hit on this beautifully earlier on. but. I have kind of a deep question for you guys. I might not even have an answer today, but I'm going to float the question now and maybe we can think about it and come back to it and maybe our listeners can throw some ideas at us. The, what is it about this show that makes us expect more of it? It's a heavy question, but one that I want to leave here. What does it say about the show that we expect so much from it that it can't have an off night?
1: I don't know if there's anything about the show in particular. I think that's more of a testament to its greatness.
0: You're only as good
2: as your last envelope.
0: What have you done for me lately? That's true. That's actually a mindset. We get these like one after the other after the other. And then people complain about a dream sequence episode or people complain about this episode. And again, I'm going to go back to it now because Naya educated me. You need some palate cleansers, man. You need a break sometimes. Sometimes you can't handle the truth, so to speak. Right?
1: That's what's, in my opinion, kind of going on with Game of Thrones there's so much setup and character development that goes on in the earlier seasons. And now they're nearing the end. They see the finish line and they're just trying to fit in every single big storyline, like have it come to an end where in the Sopranos, there's a lot of action and a lot of movement and, and the storyline is moving on. But sometimes you need a little bit of a break just to settle things, just to get a, a few antidotes out, like recording in Denmark I I looked at this particular episode as something that was just filled with comedy. This was one of the funnier episodes. It was a funny
0: episode, for sure. I think think on that
2: play, you're going to have people that like the show for different reasons and may gravitate towards the drama or the comedy. And um, I found a, a quote from David Chase in 2012 from Vanity Fair, and he told them, the Sopranos was ambiguous to the point where to this day I'm not really sure whether it was a drama or a comedy. Right. And like Justin said, this was a funny one. And like we we've, we've said we enjoy the episode and when you're as a big of a fan as we are, you look for the kernels of success. Greatness. You look for a reason that it's not that bad. I mean, it,
0: even on an off night, it's still better than any squad you put on the court. Did the episode rock your
2: socks? No, it, it's Balls Out Soprano's most introspective episode. It's not supposed to rock.
0: Where was the fucking chorus? <laughs> I think we did this one. It's Justice. We'll be back next week with episode 11. Things are starting to roll. Things are starting to come to a conclusion. Season one and everything that we've been building up to is starting to take shape. I will leave you with...
2: Let's leave them with the soft sounds of visiting day.
0: I was going to say, we're going to try to keep it simple, but significant.